millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Recycle by Eurosport podcast that pulls on a merino wool jersey to ascend a mountain of legendary stories from the peloton's past brought to you by zwift where fun is fast recycle is written by felix Lowe, narrated by me graham wildos and produced by pete burton in our previous episode we got stuck into one of cycling's bitterest rivalries as it came to a head during the 1957 vuelta espana when climbing sensation Federico Bajamontes blew a 16-minute lead to hand his big rival Jesus Lerogno the yellow jersey. In the third and final episode of Recycle's Welter season, we recall how a combination of bad luck, mismanagement, Machiavellian machinations and team alliances twice stopped Robert Miller from becoming Britain's first Grand Tour winner. The mythical stolen welter of 1985 was hard enough to take on its own, but Miller would go on to finish second again just one year later. Who invents this shit? That's Philippa York's reaction to the claim that Peugeot's director sportive, Roland Berlan, hidden his car so he would not have to confront his forlorn rider after losing the 1985 Welter Espana on the penultimate day. I used to read journalists' pieces about races, and sometimes it felt like a totally different race to the one I did, York continues, reminiscing over her topsy-turvy career as Robert Miller, one of pro cycling's most recognisable and popular pure climbers. Things that didn't happen at all and were invented. Absolute rubbish. I used to say, I also have the right to judge you on what you do. Quite a lot of them got annoyed at that, because I would say, that was just crap. Where did you make that up? Were you even at the race or just in the press room? A lot has been written about the day Miller somehow lost the Vuelta, and, while many myths and legends have emerged, the nuts and bolts of an extraordinary stage remain immovable. Entering stage 18, just one day away from what looked to be a certain overall victory, 
Miller held a six-minute gap over Spain's Pedro Delgado, who was not even in the top five of the general classification. Yet a combination of bad luck, misinformation and an impromptu Spanish alliance all conspired to produce what York describes as a perfect storm, as Delgado took the yellow jersey in dramatic scenes that have never been matched since. Miller was so embittered by the Machiavellian actions of his Spanish-speaking rivals that the 26-year-old supposedly stated after the race that he would never race again in Spain after a controversial addition that has been known ever since, by British fans at least, as the Stolen Welter. I didn't say that, York is quick to stress, some 36 years after the most devastating setback of her career. I didn't say that at all. I loved racing in Spain. Just a few months later, I won in Catalonia, which is their second biggest race. It's like a rider saying they're never going to ride in France again at the Tour, then going on to win the Dauphiné. It would have been pretty stupid for me to say something like that. I never knew where that rumour came from. It's really poor. Indeed, Miller was back racing in Spain just three months later, in the Classica Cyclista San Sebastián following troubled Tour de France that proved the death knell for the Scots' first stint at the French Peugeot team. Miller then won the Volta Catalunya, beating Ireland's Sean Kelly by three slender seconds, before returning to the Vuelta in 1986 for his new Panasonic team. Another climb up the legendary Lagos de Covadonga gave Miller an early chance to bury his demons and take the Vuelta mountain stage win that had narrowly eluded him on three occasions the previous year. It also propelled the iconoclastic climber into the yellow jersey and set the wheels in motion for another ultimately fruitless quest to become Britain's first ever Grand Tour winner. This is the tale of how one of the best climbers of his generation had the Vuelta snatched from under his nose, only to return one year later and relive the entire experience all over again. A whippet-thin, uphill specialist, Robert Miller moved to France in 1979 after a promising spell on the amateur scene. Having signed with Peugeot, he came second to Greg Le Mans in the Tour de l'Avenir in 1982. He then finished second, again behind the American, in 1983's Criterium du Dauphiné. Miller's early promise shone through in his debut Tour de France that year, which he rode in support of fellow English-speaking riders Stephen Roach and Phil Anderson. The 24-year-old won a stage in the Pyrenees, finishing ahead of Pedro Delgado, his future nemesis, in a mammoth route that took in the Obisque, Tourmalet, Aspan and Perisord. A year later, Miller won again in the Pyrenees before securing the polka dot jersey in the Alps in the final week. That was en route to coming fourth overall as Frenchman Laurent Fignon secured back-to-back tour victories. It was as Britain's first king of the mountains, then, that Miller arrived at the Vuelta in April 1985. He was also Peugeot's team leader for a race that included four summit finishes and 37 climbs, 10 of which were first category. Here's a description of Miller from Lucy Fallon and Adrian Bell's seminal book, Viva la Vuelta. A prickly character, the Scot didn't court journalists, who
who found him rude and monosyllabic. Yet he was impeccably professional, earning respect in the peloton and among teammates. In Spain, this diminutive and sharp-faced cyclist cut a somewhat peculiar figure with his pierced ear, long hair and vegetarian diet. He complained about the stir his earring caused, but it must have been a rather gratifying confirmation of his unconventionality. York, now a Eurosport TV pundit and an established cycling writer, remembers the fans referring to her as El Pendientes on account of that earring. They were just coming out of the Franco era, and people had only just stopped wearing green and beige cargo clothing, she says. Nobody had earrings back then, but I did. People used to shout abuse at me and call me a homosexual, and all the rest of the slurs that they could. You just dealt with it. In the deciding time trial in the third week, one prominent banner on the side of the road read Españoles valientes que no gane el pendientes. The translation, Brave Spaniards, don't let the one with the earring win. Despite this simmering cauldron of unease, York actually enjoyed racing in Spain. I liked the randomness of it, she recalls. You never knew what you were going to get. It was like 21 one-day races. Anything could happen. You could ride along easy at the start, and then it could all kick off. Then it could be flat out for an hour. Then it will just stop, and you'll ask yourself, what was that all about? Who's in trouble? I don't know. That's what makes it more interesting than the other races, all this random stuff. The Giro is never like this, and the Tour is just too nervous and stressful. But it was this very randomness that proved Miller's undoing on the penultimate stage of the race, on the rolling road to Palazuelos de Resma on the outskirts of Segovia. Segovia also happened to be the hometown of Delgado, who started the day in sixth place, six minutes and 13 seconds down on the rider in yellow. Was he too far behind to be a serious factor in the leader's thinking? York admits, I wasn't racing against him on a fateful stage in which the yellow jersey would nevertheless end up on the shoulders of Delgado. Fourth the year before, when Frenchman Eric Caratou took a surprise win, Delgado was among the favourites for a Vuelta that started one week after his 25th birthday. Having been lured away from the Reynolds team, Delgado fronted a strong Sayat Orbia squad alongside compatriot Pelo Ruiz Cabestani, as the host nation looked to return to winning ways after back-to-back triumphs from Frenchman Bernardino and Caratou. Alberto Fernandez, who had lost the Vuelta to Caratou by just six seconds, had been killed in a car crash along with his wife the previous December. There was, therefore, a sense in which Spanish cycling was looking to rebound from this tragic loss. And the home fans had a new star to cheer when the unheralded 20-year-old Miguel Ingerain finished second in the prologue. Two days in, and the Spanish debutante swapped white for yellow to become the youngest leader of the Vuelta in the race's history. The first week of a fairly tumultuous race, meanwhile, unravelled in chaotic fashion. Terrible weather in the northern region of Galicia made for frequent crashes not helped by a sheepdog running into the peloton during stage four on a crazy day that saw support cars get lost and two Belgians swinging punches at each other and their compatriot Eddie Plankart taking his second win. 
The first big GC shakeup came on stage six to Lagos de Covadonga, the otherworldly climb in the Asturias Mountains, which was being used for the third year running. Here, Indurain cracked, the youngster conceding a whopping 13 minutes to his former Reynolds teammate Delgado on the first summit finish of the race. It had been Miller who put in a dig on the steep section of La Husera, but the Scot had gone too deep. Once Delgado battled back, the Spaniard attacked on the ramps ahead of the descent towards the lakes. Victory put Delgado in yellow, with a seven-second lead over his Basque teammate Ruiz, and 13 seconds on Miller. Ruiz then enjoyed three days in yellow, before Miller left his mark on a tenth stage that featured five testing climbs. With the Seat Orbia duo conceding 30 seconds, the Scotsman moved into yellow as Islands Kelly took the win. Two days later, Miller again came in runner-up in the mountain time trial in Andorra to consolidate his overall lead. I came second three times, York recalls. I kept messing up stage wins, just through lack of experience, really. Sometimes I made the wrong assumption that I was stronger than the other guys. Attacking into a headwind, chilly starts, that kind of stuff. It's all things you learn from. He might have been leading the general classification, but Miller's bad luck continued. In what was, on paper, the final GC showdown, the stage 17 time trial around Alcalá de Henares, northeast of Madrid, Miller punctured. Having already switched his climber's bike for a heavier bike with a disc wheel at the back, a rear flat forced him to change back onto his original steed. He kept his call to finish 40 seconds back in third place and retain the yellow jersey, but things could have been very different going into what proved to be the decisive stage of the race. I still had the best time of the GC men, but without the puncture, I'd have won the time trial, York recalls. I would have been 30 to 40 seconds better off. Ruiz won the time trial by 37 seconds over the Colombian Pacho Rodriguez, who Miller led by precarious 10 seconds on GC going into the penultimate stage. Ruiz was 1 minute 15 seconds back in third, with his teammate Delgado, who could only post the 13th best time against the clock, seemingly out of the equation. Most people believed the race was over, with just three lower category climbs on the menu in stage 18, and the best climber in yellow, surely Miller had one foot on the top step of the podium. Even the cautious Scott was reportedly confident of closing the deal. The Vuelta's over. I've won, he claimed. I just have to stick to Pacho Rodriguez's wheel, and it's done. While York claims this was something else she never said, hindsight tells us Rodriguez was, nevertheless, not the rider Miller needed to fear most. On a cold, damp day, the 200-kilometre-long penultimate stage featured the climbs of Morquera, Cotos and Los Leones ahead of a 43-kilometre run to the finish. While it looked an unlikely task, Domingo Perorena, Orbia Siat's sporting director, instructed his riders to attack Miller at any opportunity given his slender lead and the tricky conditions. And so it happened. When the yellow jersey punctured on the second climb, 
a flurry of attacks rained down. Calme's stage hunter Jose Recio went clear with Delgado, and they had a small gap by the time Miller had been brought back to the front group by his remaining teammates, who quickly dropped back to leave the yellow jersey isolated. Delgado had momentarily come back to the main group before zipping clear once again on the descent in pursuit of Recio. With Miller sticking to his main rivals like glue, the Basque rider Ruiz had cut Delgado loose in search of a win in his own backyard. He soon rejoined Recio, who had himself won in Segovia the previous year, and the pair started to build up a solid lead as a chase group formed including Sean Kelly and two Zor teammates of the Colombian Rodriguez. Miller appeared to be unaware of the mounting danger as he rode alongside his two most direct rivals, oblivious to the growing threat posed by Delgado up the road. TV images of the yellow jersey group ahead of the final climb of Los Leones show Miller chatting to his prospective podium companions with what Lucy Fallon and Adrian Bell describe in Viva la Vuelta as a mixture of cockiness and sportsmanship. According to them, he even commiserated with his rivals, saying, It wasn't to be. I'm sorry. You tried. But it wasn't to be. Nope, never said that either, York insists. But it would have been understandable for Miller to feel this way in a time before race radios existed, and the timing information on the blackboards was often patchy at best. The Scot probably noticed that Perorena, Ruiz's director sportive at Seat Orbia, was following his own group, so he took it for granted that Delgado was not too far up the road. There wasn't any time checks, York confirms. I mean, there were some, but sporadic is probably the right word. And I didn't know who it was up the road. Did you see the women's road race in the Olympics where they didn't know what was happening up ahead? and Anna Kaisenhofer was able to take an unexpected win. It was a bit like that. And, just as Kaisenhofer would ride to an Olympic gold medal in Tokyo, Pedro Delgado was on his way to snatching the unlikeliest of yellow jerseys. The Peseta dropped for Miller once his own director sportif, Roland Berlong, drove up and told him that Delgado and Recio had a five-minute cushion with just 40 kilometres remaining. But by then, it was too late. What happened the year before was still fresh in the mind, and they didn't want another foreigner winning their race, York says. Nobody wanted to ride, and all the options were taken. You can't ride on the front yourself, because they won't help, and in the end, you'll be nowhere. You get done over. It's just how it is. I'd see other races where that happened, and you just accept it but then it happens to you. The Spanish teams and riders seemed happier to let a homegrown hero take the spoils rather than an outsider like Miller, especially after the previous victories for Eno and Caratu. As such, the Zor sporting director, Javier Minguez, did not order his two riders to drop back from the Kelly chase group to help pace Rodriguez back into contention, because that would only hand the overall win back to Miller, even if the Colombian's second place on the podium was in jeopardy. Rodriguez and Ruiz, meanwhile, sat on Miller's wheel and refused to collaborate, sacrificing their own chances of the overall win.
Without any teammates, Miller was wary of going for broke on the final climb because it would open him up for potential annihilation. And on the run-in to Palazuelos de Eresma, he was wary of doing too much work and then getting dropped by his fresher rivals nearer the finish. On the front, meanwhile, Delgado had come to an arrangement with Recio. He would let him take the stage, provided they rode together to ensure he took the yellow jersey. At the time, the humiliated Miller spoke of this sudden show of Spanish unity as so blatant, so scandalous, and he felt like a laughing stock. But over time, York has become more accepting and stoic about what went down. The whole lack of communication, the conspiracy thing and Spanish team alliances, it all adds up to the perfect storm, she says. It's one of those things where you get done over and you see it happening, but there was nothing I could do about it because that's the way it is. You learn to accept it. It's nothing personal. It's not because they don't like you. It's because they don't like the situation. Recio indeed took the win ahead of Delgado with the Kelly Chase group coming home three and a half minutes down. The Miller group was six minutes 50 seconds down, which put the Scot 36 seconds adrift ahead of the final flat stage into Salamanca. The race was over. Delgado later captured the national mood by declaring, My victory is Spain's. Tellingly, Delgado also admitted, I didn't win this Vuelta. The Peugeot team lost it. And that seems a very fair takeaway, for the Spaniard would clearly never have taken the yellow jersey without all the circumstances coming together to help him, not least Miller's complete lack of team support. In the documentary The High Life, which charts Miller's ultimately frustrating final season at Peugeot in 1985, the Scot is blunt in his assessment of where things went wrong for him in the Vuelta. While admitting that he probably rode too many races that spring and that his failure to win at the Vuelta cracked me up a bit, he also hits out at his director sportif Ballon. It was Ballon's fault, the team manager's fault, that I lost, Miller says on film with remarkable candour. Everybody there all knew that I should have won. Ballon knows that I should have won when he thinks about it. Can't do anything about it now. Quizzed on the same subject three and a half decades later, York remains convinced that the blame lies at Berlon's door. Well, yeah, he was the manager of the team, she says. It was his responsibility. He wanted to win the team prize, so the day before that stage, the time trial, he made everyone ride flat out when they could have had a rest day. Then, the next day, they all got blasted because they were so knackered. Indeed, as Miller successfully defended his yellow jersey that day despite a puncture, his French teammate Gilbert Duclos-Lassalle, who had no GC aspirations, rode full gas to take fifth place in the TT, while Pascal Simon came in tenth. And this the day before the French duo should have been helping their man weather the storm. Then there was the question of whether Berlon had done enough to pull the strings in the background to ensure Miller had extra allies on the road. Alliances are woven into the fabric of any event, and it didn't sit well to see the Spanish teams come together to stop an irascible Scot from winning their national race. But, by the same token, 
arrangements, particularly financial ones, are often made as an extra safety blanket for riders in the GC mix. It does seem like Berlon had completely fudged his attempts to buy friends and influence people on the road to Segovia. This was my first Vuelta, and I was still a young rider, York explains. It wasn't my job to seek out arrangements or alliances. That was the manager's job. She feels that the financial approaches to other riders and teams were not made early enough, which contributed to her loss. Over time, York has become a little bit more accepting of the situation than the visibly irate Miller in the high life, for whom the taste of defeat clearly remained bitter. Berlong, York believes, was obviously out of his depth. A former sprinter who had beaten Eno to the French national title in 1979, the 40-year-old was still learning his trade as a DS at the time. Is he to blame? I don't know. He certainly took a lot of the blame, she says. I didn't really like his style of management. It's always easy to blame somebody else or to put the blame on somebody who should be in charge. To give him some kind of credit, he was completely new to that kind of situation as well. He wasn't a GC rider and he hadn't been part of teams riding for GC. He probably didn't have the experience to manage a team at a Grand Tour. For his part, Berlon says in The High Life that he was always against Miller's decision to ride the Vuelta that year and that the Peugeot team was betrayed by people who should have helped us. While not elaborating on this point, Berlon adds, somewhat enigmatically, it certainly wasn't a team failure or any fault of mine because we took every precaution. We knew it would be very difficult, but everything was arranged so that Robert could win, and there were people who didn't behave properly. That's all. It has been claimed that Sean Kelly was the subject of Boulogne's scorn for the Irishman's inability to neutralise the two riders out ahead. This seems fanciful. Also, if true, Boulogne did not exactly facilitate matters following a run-in with Kelly's manager, Jean de Gribaldi, in a hotel lobby a few days earlier. Kelly might have later laid into Peugeot for not being on their guard for an ambush, but he also stressed how he and his two French Skill-Sem teammates, Caratou and Dominique Gardet, buried themselves in the hope that he could still pick up a fourth stage win. But despite their best efforts, the gap still grew, with Kelly at the time alluding to foul play and drafting. Kelly had teammates, but they still lost time to two riders who'd been going flat out for much longer than they had been riding, York says. You heard stories about motorbikes and stuff. The gap got bigger and bigger, and he couldn't understand how that was. According to York, there was another possible dynamic to explore. Recio won the stage and Delgado took the jersey, but there was no doping control that day, and Recio didn't start the next stage. While Miller might not have received the same time checks as his Spanish rivals, however, and while there might have been a fair amount of skullduggery at play, abetted by Berlon's failure to secure any financial deals, Miller's Peugeot team were certainly found lacking. But even here, there is a little room for conjecture and controversy.
Pascal Simon had done some good work at the foot of the final climb, and both he and Ronan Pensek were doing their best to return to the Yellow Jersey group after the final climb, when they were held up at a level crossing for a train that never came. Sparking claims that even Renfe, the Spanish equivalent of British Rail, was involved. I don't know if it definitely happened, but the barriers came down and no train came, York says. Perhaps that's normal in Spain. But how would you organise that? It's not like they had mobile phones then. And how would they know who was in which groups and what the time gaps were? It all adds to the perfect, crazy story. Berlon's decision to push for the team classification in the previous day's time trial might have come back to haunt him, but it's easy to exaggerate the discord in the Peugeot camp, at least at that early stage of the season. In truth, Miller, while eccentric and a bit of a lone wolf to many of his French teammates, was still quite a popular figure at Peugeot, where he'd started his pro career in 1980. Pensek idolised the Scotsman as he rose through the ranks, while Simon even shared a loose family connection with his leader. The wife of his brother, Jerome, was the sister of Miller's then-wife, Sylvie. Both Frenchmen were devastated when they discovered Miller had lost the yellow jersey, while the Keep journalist Philippe Brunel reported how Duclos Lasalle, who came home in the Gruppetto, was totally disgusted when he learned about the outcome. If the bottles had been left out in the Spanish sun, it wasn't until later in the year that the milk went sour. The High Life captures the breakdown in relations between the French riders and Miller with his English-speaking contingent, which included Britain's Sean Yates, the Australian Alan Piper, and Norway's Dag Otto Lauritsen. Nobody was going well, and there was no spirit in the team anymore, Miller said in a documentary in an interview after a frustrating Tour de France, in which he finished 11th, more than 15 minutes behind the winner, Bernardino. They were all fighting for their lives every day when they got to the hills. Nobody could help anybody else. They realised that they weren't doing their job and they realised that I wasn't doing what I should be doing. When I told them that they weren't doing their job, they weren't very happy about it. So, they didn't want to help me anymore. Not only was Miller younger than most of his teammates, he also wasn't French, nor did he have the form to back up his criticism. This only increased a divide that Piper, the frank Australian, was only too happy to discuss with the cameras rolling. A lot of them don't like that we speak English, but I can't talk to Robert or Sean in French. It's just ridiculous. We speak as much French to them as we can, but sometimes you've just got to speak in your own language. But they don't seem to understand that because the French are so one-track-minded. They've never been outside France, they can't speak a word of another language. All they think is their chauvinistic ways. When quizzed about Berlon, Piper didn't mince his words there either. I think you've got to have some respect from the riders. And on our team, he has none. He hasn't got the strength of character that it takes to be a good leader of a team. He's a nice bloke, because every time I ask him for something, he does it for me. But that's not what being a leader is about. A team leader, when you have bad form, 
comes in and shakes you by the throat and says, What's going on? Haven't you been training or looking after yourself? A team leader, after 20 days when you haven't won a stage, doesn't say, I'll give you more money if you win a stage. He says, If yous don't win a stage, then you'll be going home tonight. Like what Peter Post said to his Panasonic team in Bordeaux. And they won. It's the wrong mentality offering more money. I don't care about more money. You've got to have that killer instinct. It's got to be winning, not money. The money comes after the winning. Unsurprisingly, Miller and Piper jumped ship that winter and joined the mighty Belgian Panasonic team run by that man Post. Things went a little sour with Peugeot in the Vuelta and then the tour in 1985, where it turned a bit nasty, York confirms. There was a bit of resentment between the French half of the team and the rest of us, especially when we had success. They didn't like it when we spoke English. It was just one of those resistance to change things. I'd kind of had enough of them by then. I wasn't learning enough. It was kind of by mutual consent, and I started listening to offers. A lot of us English-speaking guys left one after the other. Basically, we got better offers from somewhere else, and I didn't think we were going to progress at Peugeot within the structure that existed at the time. After a reduced classics campaign, Miller returned to the Vuelta España the following April with fire in his belly, determined to put things right. Wiser to the ways of racing in Spain, and with a better team around him, the Scot entered the race, unlike the year before, with genuine GC ambitions. It was on stage six to Lagos de Covadonga where Miller finally picked up a maiden Vuelta stage win while also taking the yellow jersey. And, to make it all the sweeter, the man he beat to the line was Pedro Delgado. Looking back, York remembers the climb as little more than a goat track. The road was really poorly surfaced, and really rough once you got to where the hardest bit was. It was not knowing the severity of the mountain the year before that had proved Miller's undoing, and he was determined not to make the same mistake twice. Covadonga is fine, it's just a matter of learning how to ride it, York explains. I should have won the year before, I was the strongest one there, but I rode the start of the climb quite poorly because I didn't know it. When I came back the next year, I had a better idea of where the hard bits were, so I could put the other guys into difficulty. I went there thinking, I should have won there last year. I figured out exactly what I had to do. Being used for the fourth time running since its introduction in 1983, Lagos de Covadonga was touted as Spain's answer to Alpe d'Huez and quickly became an iconic climb in the Vuelta. With its two lakes beneath the summit and stunning views over the Picos de Europa range, it was a climb of unspoilt natural beauty that boasted a stinging double-digit ramp, La Jusera, seven kilometres from the summit. Marino Lejareta, the climb's inaugural winner four years earlier, made the first move from the GC group after his Seat Orbia team set a tempo to whittle things down. By now, Mark Gomez of Reynolds, the French race leader, 
had been distanced, putting his compatriot Laurent Fignon in the virtual yellow jersey, although the System U leader was beginning to feel the pinch. Delgado then showed his hand on the toughest part of the climb at La Husera. But while the Spaniard pedalled furiously, as if he had something to prove, Miller climbed in a calculated fashion, dodging the potholes and cracks in the weather-beaten road before throwing down the hammer where it mattered most. With the gradient peaking at more than 15% on this section, the trick, according to York, is to measure your effort to avoid going into the red in the final third of the climb. It's a long and steep straight where you have to control what you do, she says. You don't ride that at your absolute limit. After that, it eases up a little bit. Then there's another little hard bit just before the descent down towards the lakes, and Delgado broke me here in 1985. Then, in 86, I dropped them all there. York says she had gone a bit too hard on the steepest part at La Husera in 85 and dropped everyone but a couple of guys. Delgado was dropped, but he came back and attacked on the next bit because I never really recovered after my attack, she explains. So, the next year, I didn't ride as hard as I could and I let the guys go in front of me. Then I caught them again, just like they caught me the year before. Then I rode as hard as I could from there to the finish and I dropped them all after about a kilometre riding on the front with them all swinging on the wheel. York admits that another factor in her tactics was the fact that she rode each day as it came in 1985, whereas, a year later, she was very much thinking of the GC from the outset. In 86, I was riding a GC race, so it was a different way of riding from just trying to win the stage, she says. You don't expose yourself as much to stupid big accelerations and putting yourself in the red. I also wanted to put them in difficulty, so they never recovered and lost more time on the way to the finish. I rode a really nasty tempo, so they all went into the red for a really long time and never recovered. So, when they were dropped, it would go a lot slower than if I had just attacked and let them go at their own speed. At the summit, Miller was unable to even raise his arms in celebration as he crossed the poor excuse for a finish line. Amid a chaotic mass of fans who had jumped the barriers, nine seconds clear of Delgado to take the yellow jersey. The German Ryman Dietzen, who had finished third in the Vuelta in 1984 and would twice finish runner-up in Spain, was next to arrive alongside the Spaniard Alvaro Pino, who had battled to limit his losses to just 23 seconds on the Scot after an outstanding late surge. While the time gains on his rivals were not huge, Miller had come through this early test with flying colours. He'd put to rest his demons, opened up his welter account after those three second-place finishes the previous year, and, above all, underlined that he had improved both mentally and physically from his setback in 1985. The Scot held the Mayo Amarillo for five days before everything came undone on stage 11, a 29-kilometre time trial around Valladolid. Pino, who became the leader at Zor after the Colombian Jose Rodriguez suffered a fall, had already narrowly beaten Miller in the short 9.7km TT up the Alto de Naranco, but this time the 56-second swing saw the Spaniard assume the race lead. 
He did a better time trial than expected on stage eight, and I didn't go very well, coming in fourth, York recalls. Then there were a couple of days when I was exposed to side winds and I'd just been hanging in there. And then I didn't do a good time trial on stage 11. For whatever reasons, I was knackered and I lost the jersey. Off the bike, things were not going much better. Four days later, after the 15th stage to Albacete, Miller finally lost his call at the hotel dinner table after being served pasta that York recalls as being inedible and comparable to dog food. It was utterly disgusting, she says. The other guys were eating it, but I had better standards than that. It was shit, overcooked and covered in oil. So I told them to take it back, but they just washed it in cold water and brought it out again. It was cold, so they went back and heated it up, and it was just a big mush. Frustrated after another testing day in the saddle, Miller blew a fuse. That's when I took it and flung it in the air. I completely lost the plot, York admits. I chucked the plate up and it stuck to the ceiling. It was a really good shot and everyone suddenly looked up from the table. Everybody's mouth fell open. We were in one of those hotel conference rooms with no windows, with four or five teams all there, and my plate was stuck to the ceiling. All the guys had stopped eating because of the noise, but this plate of mushy pasta wasn't going to stay there forever. When it came down, everyone jumped out of the way, and then their knees hit the underside of the table, and this sent things everywhere. All the glasses, plates and water and so on, and I got up and said, I've had enough of this shit, and I left. Miller went across the road to another hotel where two more teams were based. He sat down and ordered some food in the restaurant, but the waiter refused to serve him. He told me I had to go back to eat in the other hotel with my team, York says. I had my credit card with me and I said, Look, I'm a f***ing customer. I'll order and if you've got it, give me a table. What's the problem? The manager was summoned and, after another argument, which played out in full view of his rival teams, finally Miller was served. Not trusting the kitchens, he ordered two or three desserts. Word got round of the Scots' meltdown before the inevitable happened. The next day, everyone attacked me right from the start because they thought I hadn't eaten the night before, York recalls. It was the sidewind stage that day, and they all went like maniacs. That year, I just wasn't strong enough on the really windy days. I'd finish on the front, but it would cost me a lot. It was clearly time for Miller's new Panasonic team to learn from Peugeot's mistakes and ring in some favours ahead of the crucial final week. Roland and Berlon had failed miserably in making the necessary arrangements, but did the Scots' new DS, Walter Plankart, fare any better? There were still a couple of situations where we needed some friends and didn't have any, York admits. They'd probably done a deal first and talked about it days before you'd even thought about it, but that's racing. Sometimes you have friends, sometimes you don't. Sometimes the friends you have one day aren't friends the next. Miller still held one trump card, though, in the form of the 17th stage to Sierra Nevada, where he felt his superior climbing ability could make up the difference. 
Unlike at Lagos de Covadonga, however, Miller made a tactical gamble by attacking too soon. I let the emotions take over my thinking, and I went too early, York explains. If you're riding a GC race and want to take two minutes off people, you're not going to go four kilometres from the finish. You're going to have to commit to something 10 to 15 kilometres out and hope it works out. But on the stage to Sierra Nevada, I went with, like, 30 kilometres to go. It made good television because there were teams trying to pull me back and one by one they dropped off. Then I was going head-to-head with Pino and it could have worked out. If Pino had blown, he could have lost two minutes. Indeed, it might have paid off had Pino's Zor team not done a deal with Fignon's System U, who helped lead the chase on Miller after he had successfully managed to ride clear. Fignon was riding behind with Eric Boyer, York recalls, and when our guys approached them for help, they were told that a deal had already been done. That was nothing personal. I would have counted Fignon as one of the people I was friendly enough with to talk about other shit. It was just one of those things, like the year before, but maybe not as apparent. That was blatant. When the Colombian Fabio Parra bridged over to Miller, instead of combining with the Scot, he rode straight past in pursuit of the last two men further up the road. F***ing laughs York. I told him to wait. You're not going to attack me. Yet he did, after I'd been riding 15 kilometres on my own. He could have waited for 50 metres and given me a rest. Because he didn't take that much time out of me, so I could have ridden to the finish with him, and I could have given the stage to him, and I might have moved further up on GC. Who knows? But he jumped me, and that was the end of it. Behind, Pino had rallied, thanks in no small part to some pacing from Lejareta, who put his wheel at his countrymen's disposal after another inter-team alliance. That's not to downplay the efforts of Pino, an athlete in the form of his life, and one described by Fallon and Bell in Viva la Vuelta as a modest rider with a great capacity for suffering, ready to die on his bicycle, as well as liable to burst into floods of tears at emotional moments. Pino caught me and tried to drop me, says York, and that annoyed me as well, because I knew he'd done another deal with the other guys. He hadn't been in the chase when he was meant to be doing it, so then I beat him in the sprint because I made myself do it. To make matters worse, the Panasonic team had been forced to switch hotels the night before at the last minute over another restaurant-related mishap in the city of Hyen, while... During the stage, the team car was not allowed through to support Miller with water and information. Once again, the Scot smelt conspiracy all round. The final straw came on the final day in the 22-kilometre time trial around Jerez de la Frontera, where Miller, as York recalls, buried myself and still lost half a minute to someone who can't time trial. Incredibly, the diminutive climber from Galicia won the flattish TT ahead of Fignon and Kelly, with a speechless Miller able to take only fourth place at 33 seconds. I changed gear just once in that time trial, on a motorway bridge or something like that, York recalls. I was flat out in the big ring, 
and I didn't do a bad time trial. I did pretty well. But then you watch the TV shots and you see the motorbike a few metres in front of Pino. But that's just how racing in Spain was. For the second year running, Miller had finished second at the Vuelta. This time, his losing margin was 66 seconds to Pino, with Ireland's Kelly completing the podium in a distant third place, more than five minutes back. These things happen, says York. Sometimes you're the best, but you don't win, and sometimes the winner is not the best. That's just how it is. So, what happened next? A month later, Miller went on to finish runner-up in the Tour of Switzerland behind Andy Hampston. The Scot then withdrew from the Tour, just two days from Paris, having dropped to 15th place after the decisive time trial. Miller was once again the bridesmaid in 1987, when he finished runner-up to Stephen Roach in his only ever Giro d'Italia, winning a stage and the King of the Mountains jersey in the process. After aiding former teammate Roach to the first part of his historic Triple Crown in Italy, Miller then joined forces with him again at the Fajor team in 1988, a year the Irishman sat out almost entirely with a knee injury. In Roach's absence, Miller came sixth in the Vuelta when another Irishman, Kelly, emerged victorious. Miller then returned to the Peugeot team in 1989 with the eye-catching new lead sponsor, the Z Clothing Company. It was, Miller said at the time, like going back home. After a win in the Pyrenees at Super Bagneres, ahead of the defending champion Delgado, no less, Miller took 10th place in the final classification as Greg Limon recorded that fabled 8-second win over Fignon. It would be the last time the Scot would crack the top 10 at a Grand Tour. Miller rode up Lagos de Covadonga two further times, in 1992 and 1993, but to little fanfare, with that man Delgado taking the victory on the first occasion. I got dropped really early, York recalls. That's what happens towards the end of your career, and things just start to go really badly. With the Spanish powerhouse Miguel Indurain ruling the roost in the early to mid-90s, the slight Miller with his ponytail, headband and trademark earring, looked increasingly like a relic of a bygone era. After winning the British National Championships on the Isle of Man in 1995 at the age of 36, and in the last race of his career, Miller bowed out with an unintentional bang. He had hoped to ride one final tour that summer, but instead his Le Groupement team folded. Miller's victory above the mythical Covadonga Lakes in the Asturias remains one of the most satisfying of a long and illustrious career. When I was dropped at La Husera, I wasn't worried because I knew I could come back and then kick on, says York. And it worked out. It's not often that that happens. What you plan works out well. It was all about being in the right position and doing the right things at the right time. It was probably my most satisfying win, because it went the way I was hoping it was going to go. And what happened afterwards doesn't change that. Looking back at those two editions of the Vuelta, when she came so close to winning, would, 
or could York have done anything differently? In 85? No, I couldn't have changed the outcome, she says. In 86? Maybe better equipment choices, because we came only with a low-profile time trial bike. I could probably have done better with my positioning on the flat days, and I made some bad tactical decisions. But if you're a bike rider, that's just one of those things you have to learn to deal with. York certainly doesn't begrudge either Delgado or Pino their Vuelta victories, despite the pain they inflicted upon her at the time. I've read that I hate Pedro Delgado, says York. What rubbish. I never held a grudge against him. It wasn't his fault. He's a perfectly likeable person. I liked him. People never talk about the fact that we got on. OK, he won better races than me, but it doesn't mean I disliked him. I might try my best to beat him during a race, but it doesn't mean we don't get on once the race is finished. People think you take home that level of aggression and nastiness that you have in a race, but that's crazy. That's not what happens. That goes about half an hour after a race. Provided, of course, you're not served a dog's dinner at the team hotel. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport. Brought to you by Zwift, where fun is fast. Recycle is written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilcos. Produced by Pete Burton. This episode is edited by Chris Watts. You can read more from Felix on Twitter at Saddleblaze and you can find me at Graham Wilgos. You can find Pete making plans for an autumnal Paris-Roubaix. Plus, you can follow Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK or you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Winning is an everyday mindset, and we're here to help I'm Craig Robinson. Join me and Coach John Calipari for Ways to Win. We're kicking off during March Madness. Cal's Kentucky Wildcats are in the hunt. So throughout the tournament, I'm going to call up my friend to ask about his wins, losses, and especially what he's telling his players in the locker room. You got to win every day. Find the Ways to Win podcast anywhere you listen. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.